Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And hello there everybody, it's Graham here. We're not going to mess around this time, we're going straight into a story. This one comes from the Lincolnshire Cars. And just in case you didn't listen to the other episode on the Cars or can't remember, the Cars here refers to a marsh, a fen, a large wetland area, the details of which will become a lot more apparent as we go into the story. For this episode I want to begin things a bit differently. There's a bit of a lengthy lead-in here as I set the scene, and I've also told this story a bit closer to the original text than I usually do. There are still asides, but they are somewhat fewer. And there's a bit of an odd framing narrative that I've added for reasons I don't really understand, but here we go with it. So, let's begin the tale of the dead hand. We've talked quite a lot on this podcast about 19th century folklorists, and for this episode I want you to imagine that you are one. You may picture your character as you wish, but I'll just give you a few bits of context that you can build them around. You, as this folklorist, have certainly been born into a life of extraordinary privilege. This doesn't mean a life free of serious suffering, like it might today, You've almost certainly had life-threatening illnesses yourself. You have lost loved ones to them. Chances are you've given birth to or have fathered children who have died shortly thereafter. You might have had to fight in wars or to marry someone you really didn't want to. You lived for a childhood full of cruel and sadistic authority figures from school, church and family. But you are privileged. You're educated. You don't have to destroy your body with work. You have free time and you can read and you can write. Oh, and how you do so much of those in the absence of vast swathes of the rest of the media we enjoyed today to distract us. Reading and writing all the live long day. If it's not books or it's not journals, it's letters. So many letters. And through your many correspondence, you've become caught up in a nascent cultural movement. A small movement by the standards of these things, but one which attracts people with a mind like yourself to it. It gives you an activity to get lost in, to eat up all those free days you're so fortunate to have. You see, out there, in the countryside, there are great masses of uneducated people, living simple, rustic lives. But as industrialisation continues apace, they flock to the cities. And in the other direction, machines and ideas and hopes flow out of the cities to the country. These timeless rural communities are threatened by these two flows. Not just threatened, in fact, they are falling apart, withering and dying. And that is a problem for people with interests like you. Because the people of these places have for centuries been passing down stories and songs and little bits of wisdom preserving the very ancient culture of the land in their simple way. An oral history kept within families and within communities that have remained unchanged for hundreds of years. Much of this so-called knowledge is patently nonsense, 
laughable superstitions. New shoes put on a table don't cause bad luck to before the house. Spitting on money received doesn't bring good luck. Elves do not shoot cattle, and the properly prepared bones of a toad don't give you power over horses. But nevertheless, all these simple beliefs are very interesting indeed. Guys, if you're listening to this podcast, it shouldn't be too difficult to imagine yourself as this character, okay? But the problem is, if these communities are split up and modernised, how will all this be remembered? That great oral tradition that has transmitted this through centuries into the present is like a telescope trained on an ancient and otherwise forgotten world, which will now be smashed forever, with no hopes of it being reconstructed, and all opportunity to understand that past will be forever lost. Uh, A necessary disclaimer at this point, by the way, listeners, this is all what you, as this particular folklorist character, believe at that time. Please do not take these as the views of all folklorists at the time, and really don't take them as my views, because they, they aren't really right. But anyway, that's what you believe. So, what do people like you do about this? Well, there's only one solution. These things need to be written down, probably so a century and a half later people can listen to someone else talk about them on their portable gramophones or whatever futuristic technology will exist. And luckily, you are on the case. You're not one of these folklorists who just writes about it, reads about it and digs out old manuscripts. Nope, not you. You're a doer, a people person. You are out there, into the remote, barbarous locations that have yet to be spoiled by the hand of progress. You talk to these simple, basic, ignorant, credulous folk, and you get them to recite their stories. You carefully write them down, making changes when you think they've got something wrong. (laughs) They do do that. Or, of course, omitting quite a lot if they talk of things too coarse for your more refined, delicate audience. Then you get them typed up, submitted to a journal or published as a volume, and you take whatever profit or social prestige comes from that, and your name will be remembered. And today, here you are, in one of those wild, untamed places. It's the area of Lincolnshire where once the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Lindsay held sway. And it's remote. And by remote, I mean, it's 40 miles from Lincoln, that's only had a train station for some 30 years, and 10 miles from Louth, that's only had one since 1870 or so. That's only a decade ago. Now, to be fair, you do know that it has already changed here. Huge changes. The marshlands that once covered this place have been replaced with a patchwork of fields crisscrossed with wide drainage ditches emptying into canals. A much more welcoming landscape than the vast foreboding wetland that used to cover this area, and which many of your contemporaries still imagine is the state of the county today. You are looking for those few aged people who remember the times before this, or at least remember stories of that time of the diseased swamps that existed previously. And you're in luck. As spending time with these people, you've become assured, and this is a genuine quote from a folklorist, by the way, quote, that the old and simple heathendom still lies untouched, though hidden, below successive varnishes of superstition, religion, and civilization. It's that heathendom you are here to uncover. Now imagine that you've had a good day of interviewing people, discovering the heathendom, 
Unfortunately, you've also had to sit through many songs about nutting girls and a blacksmith banging away and a housewife darning holes with the realisation that you won't get away with printing any of that. But mostly it's been good. And now you're reaching the end of this day, but there's one appointment still to keep. You're walking down a winding dusty lane to a very small cottage just outside the village proper. The house is the furthest out you've been this day, and the mile or so walk in the summer evening gives you time to think. You have a better idea now of this land as it used to exist before the modernisation, and as you walk you assemble your image of that time and place, the marshland known as the Cars, those many years ago. And I'm now going to quote wholesale a large section from the work of Marie Balfour, who first took down the story I'm telling you today. And I'm doing this because I just can't really word it better. This is the land as she describes it, and as you, a 19th century folklorist character, thank you for sticking with this ridiculous framing narrative, have come to similar conclusions about this place. This place, quote, is full of strange tales and stranger memories of a day in a life that is but just travelled into the past, of a day when people lived tremblingly in the midst of the unseen, more real and infinitely more terrible than the mere mortal world around them. The priests were always at them about their souls, and the good folk were always at their shoulders with the chance to do them a bad turn. So what with hell and the boggarts, they were never out of the fear of death and judgement. In that day that has only just become yesterday, in that narrowness of church and paganism which shut them so closely into strange beliefs that they were never alone, never safe and sure in the clean world of God and under his regard. They were surrounded with terrible things, unseen but certain, that whispered in their ears and felt about them with fleshless hands and waited for their unwise words, strange wayward things, whimsical at best and hideously revengeful. The good people, the strangers, the tiddy folk, the green coats, the earthkin. A world full of tiny, powerful creatures, strong to do ill, and ready to punish them interminably for a light or thoughtless word. And these were the least of their terrors. Here in the cars, there were worse that walked at large in the darkness of the night, shapes of abomination and horror, unspeakable, unknowable, that came up out of the crevices of the earth or out of the further corners of the sky in its blackness. Huge, dreadful, tyrannous things without name, infinitely strong, immeasurably wicked, only to be kept off by spells and strange prayers and stranger marks and offerings made upon doorstep and window. And in their tiny cottages, the people huddled, trembling and afraid, while the winds swung about the house filled with whispering voices and cold laughter, and the latch moved under the plucking fingers of those that waited without in the darkness. For it was only in the daylight and sunshine that God was, and the darkness was given over to every evil. There were those great black snags that worked up out of the oil, black, glistening, mouldering, came from forests below that once were green and tall in the free air, in the time when strange men hunted and fought and launched their boats, where now are peatlands and cornfields laid above their heads. And they, and all those who came after them, buried their gods and their legends beside themselves in the underworld of the marshes. Their gods and their legends did not lie quiet beside them, 
but rose again with the memories of blood and slaughter and lawlessness into haunting horrors that walked in the night into the ancient company of death. All that the peoples conceived of, ill or dread, had a home here in the wavering mists. The valley inherited the fears of the ages, and in the eyes, it was said, of those who were born and lived within it, there was a strange and terrible wisdom and understanding. Ah, and for sure, he was born in the cars. You were so lost in your conceptions of this imagined occult yesterday that it's almost a surprise when you, 19th century folklorist, find yourself having arrived at the wooden gate of the cottage. It's still warm, but the air is cooling and the sun is almost setting. The shadows are lengthening and rich golden rays stretch languidly from the horizon, bathing the surrounding fields in their soft light. You realise it will be night before you leave here. But that's okay. You're expected here, and the basic inn in which you have lodgings is but a couple of miles away at most, and if the moon doesn't light your way back, the lantern will. An old woman with a friendly smile stands at the door of the whitewashed cottage. She's clearly been waiting for you. She greets you kindly, beckons for you to come in, and you make your way through the gate and up the path, past a haphazard, riotous display of early summer colour. Hollyhocks and roses, lilacs and lupins. The large, low-roofed kitchen takes up much of the house. The walls inside are as whitewashed as those of the exterior. The large range occupies much of one wall, holes gently burning. A copper kettle has just boiled. Simple wooden chairs are arranged around a table covered with a clean, brightly patterned tablecloth. Delicate cups and saucers have been set out for your visit. There are wax flowers on the table and on the windowsills. It's a well-kept place. Though basic, the room is very neat and organised. The usual collection of brass tools by the fire, rag carpets cover much of the floor. The furniture is ancient but well looked after. Chests and dressers containing crockery. Side tables and shelves holding various pots and vases and the occasional small framed painting. Only the steel knitting needles and the current woolen project seem hastily set aside, presumably upon your approach. The old woman, her face layered with kind wrinkles, offers you a seat and serves you tea. A perfect host, warm and welcoming. She tells you her name. You don't write it down. She politely asks you questions about London, and with much more genuine interest about who you've seen already and what stories or songs you've heard. Consulting your notes, you reel off a list of story titles. The Buried Moon, The Pottle of Brains, The Green Mist, Tiddymun Without a Name, and others. She nods along, and when you reach the end, she says, Ah, ain't no one told you about Long Tom, then? You don't think so. You shake your head. Even in the few minutes you've been sitting here, the light has dimmed considerably. Darkness gently trickles in through the windows and flows into nooks and crannies and corners, slowly filling up the room. You gaze out of the small kitchen window and see the sky outside has taken on a dark blue twinge of twilight. The fields are all stark shadows now, shrouded lands that stretch uninterrupted to the distant horizon. 
Somewhere a crow croaks, but aside from that and the occasional crackles from the range, the room is oh so quiet and still. Okay, I'll tell you about Long Tom, she says. Now this is all a long, long time ago. I heard it from my grandfather when he was a very old man. He was out there with Tom, he was. Maybe that's why he always carried so many safe keeps and spells on him. Spells? you ask. Oh yes, they all had them back then. The cars were a dangerous place then. Not that it's all safe nowadays, mark you. There are things still out there, but they had it much worse than us today, with fancy city folk like you visiting us and whatnot. All sorts of things they have. It's mostly Bible spells in my time. Verses out of it all written down and crinkled up in a nutshell. Or the wise woman would write you something instead and you'd keep that with you. You know words have power, and most folk back then couldn't read nor write, of course. But if you didn't have that, well, there was stronger stuff they'd use back then too. Free straws and a cloverleaf, all tied up with the hair from a dead man. Or maybe the clippings of a dead woman's nails, if you could get them. That was a right good safekeeper, heard. Back then they all used to carry him, see? My father... My father and my grandfather, they were fair covered in them. It was really after dark they needed them, though. They'd go out to the inn, the menfolk, but they wouldn't leave in their ones and twos like folk do today, stumble off to find a kebab or a 24-hour garage with one of those slidey metal tray things, she didn't add. Nope, they'd all leave the inn together, one big group of them, and they'd make sure that everyone got home safe and sound. Tom, Tom, I was telling you about Tom. Tom Patterson he was, and I'd like to say you could ask his family all about him, but there ain't no Pattersons around here no more. He was the last of them, for reasons you'll soon be understanding. Long Tom, they called him, on account of his size. Tall and strong he was, and handsome too, they say, but that's by the pie. The woman gives you a lot of background on the Pattersons and Long Tom, and you start to form a clear impression of the lad. An only child who never knew his father, but his mother had been widowed when Tom was at a very young age. And perhaps because of this, perhaps not, he grew up fast, he grew up strong, and he grew up wild. A strapping young lad he was, and he seems to have been a bit of a tearaway, a headache to the older people of the village, but an idol to the other young folk. It's easy to imagine him strutting round the village as if it was his own, his motley gang of admirers and hangers-on trailing awestruck behind him, resting on his every word. He would catch the eye of almost every young woman in the village, giving them a suggestive leer or winking at them, to which they'd look away, roll their eyes, giggle amongst themselves. But many would feel their hearts beat with butterflies despite themselves. In a different time and place he'd have gelled back black hair, wear leather, ride a motorbike, have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth at all times, and lead his gang against a rival gang from another village, with the fighting between the two gangs consisting mostly of intimidating, syncopated finger-clicking. But despite this, it seems he wasn't actually a bad lad. Yes, he was reckless and got himself into the odd scrape or dozen. Too fond of winding folk up he was, always having to come off looking clever and cool, showing folk up. But he weren't lazy. He always treated his widowed mother well, did all the chores needed, worked hard. 
if there was something where everyone had to muck in, he'd be there too, but just in his own way, and with no one telling him what to do. He was a big fish in a small pond, that lad, and either he'd leave and go and seek his fortune, which no one from the cars ever did, or more likely, he'd find a lass and he'd settle down and probably become a pillar of the community in time, eventually turning into one of those old stuffy guys he was always complaining about now. By this point, the light has almost all gone from the small room. The old woman suddenly notices. She fetches a paraffin lamp, and after a few moments it's alight, the flickering flame casting strange shadows through the glass. And she continues. It was the keepsafes that really got to him, though. Don't know why, some contrary streak in the lad, but used to wind him up something chronic. He never carried one, and was always laughing at anyone who did. They'd all tell him to get one, of course, especially because his mother worried terrible about it. She was a worrier anyway, she was, but that, that made her worry more. But the more they told him he had to have one, the more it made him not want to get one. You know how it goes, I reckon. He'd be going home with the men from the inn and he'd have his jokes, say he saw something in the shadows, then laugh as they all panicked and reached for their talismans. Then he'd make woo noises and jump at them and the like, and they'd all swear at him and tell him to leave off. There was one night that it all came to a head. It was down the inn, so you can bet that drinking had been involved. Tom had been taunting the old guys as usual, all the young folks laughing when he mocked them as cowards or superstitious fools or both and the old fellows reckoned they'd had quite enough of this cocky young lad. The whole lot of them turned on him, telling him not to be so stupid, that the creatures in the swamplands was real as the back of his own hand, and he was a fool if he didn't think so. But that didn't do no good, and he just continued his jibe and his prodding at their honour, till eventually somebody pointed out that he weren't no better than them, that if he weren't scared, why did he wait till closing time and come home with them all in a group, with their keepsafes all keeping him safe? He wasn't crossing the cars in the dark, neither. Was always home to his mummy before sundown. Tom, Tom, he was full of ale and the invincibility of youth. And at that challenge he rises to his feet and with reckless braggadocio declares in front of everyone. Afraid? Me? Pfft. It'll be the darkest night of the year tomorrow. No moon, but I'll cross the cars with nought but a lantern. Not your silly words or your creepy bits of the dead. Your bogles and your darklings and your other... What do you call it and who do you flips? They don't frighten me. Okay, lad, okay, fine, do that then. See if we care. And in an intoxicated haze, it was agreed. The next night, Tom would take the path to the old willow snag and come back with only a lantern. I take that path every day to go to my work. Why should I fear that? I'll do it in double quick time, you'll all see, you pack of fools. And he turned to his chorus of young lads and they cheered him on. And so it was all agreed. The next night, Tom would go into the swamp. Now the next evening after the day's work was done, the men arrived outside the cottage where Tom and his mother lived, just as they always did, to go to the inn together. The older folks, they were a bit contrite from last night's words. They knew they shouldn't have got him riled up so. But they thought it weren't like he was really going to do it once the booze had worn off. 
but they were all ready just not to mention it, pretend that it was forgotten like, smooth it over with the lad. But as they got close to the cottage, they could hear Tom and his widowed mother having a right row. He was always good to her, but now his voice was raised and he was speaking harshly, and she was crying and pleading with him. And when they all arrived, he flung open the door, and she followed after him. I told you, mother, I ain't taking your bobberies or your spells. Stop your whimpering. I'll be safe and sound. I can't be having my own mother being as foolish as the rest of them. Ugh. His cruel words caused her to cry out more, but it didn't move him. The lad took up his lantern, curtly acknowledged the group of men with a nod. Well, I'm off then, he said. And with that, he strode towards the path across the cars. A few of the old men were happy to see him go, especially after seeing how he'd just treated his mother. He needed a good fright, might set this wayward son right. But most of them were more worried, and they followed after him, tried to dissuade him from it, told him he didn't have to do it, that they were only joking the other night, that no one would think any the less of him if he didn't go. Just by this, I think he'd almost won already. They were more scared than he was, and he hadn't even done anything yet. His point was made. And if he'd been a wiser lad, it would have ended there. But if he'd been a wiser lad, we wouldn't be telling this tale at all. I'm not going back on my word. You think I've got no honour, is that it? I do what I say, and I'm not scared. And Tom came to Willie Kirby, who was trying his darndest to stop him. He snapped his fingers in his face. Once, that's for the boggart, he said, and snapped them a second time. And that's for you. Now leave off with me. And short of physically restraining the lad, there weren't now to be done. But it weren't just Tom. You see, rest of village lads weren't going to let him do this on his own. Think how foolish they'd look in front of the lasses if he could say next morning that he'd braved it and none of the rest of them had been man enough to do it. They'd never live it down. Now I'm sure the old woman doesn't add this, but it seems clear that toxic masculinity had its grip on their minds as sticky and evil as the dark, putrid waters of the swamp. So he didn't ask them to do it, but a bunch of them followed after him, my grandfather amongst them. But though they puffed each other up with their talk, those lads were scared through and through, and they all had their keepsafe with them. They weren't silly enough to leave those behind, and they held them as they followed Tom out, onto the Dark Marsh Path. That path was but a narrow strip of land, and even there the earth squished and squelched underfoot. The forbidding deadly marsh stretched away on either side, and the light of the lantern fell on vast holes filled with black stagnant water, or on twisted gnarled roots, on clumps of undulating reeds that rippled under the influence of unseen forces. Tom strode with confidence, waving his lantern breezily and singing a song. He had all the misplaced bravado and ignorance of a technologically naive 50-something recent divorcee who is about to click on a pop-up that tells him that single women in his area want to meet guys like him for discreet, no-strings-attached fun. Following him at a distance of 30 yards or so came the rest of them, and they had no such bluster. But after not too long, he arrived at the willow snag that was the agreed halfway point. He'd made it. The great remains of the trees stuck out of the putrid bog, a clear way marker. And Tom turned around to the lot of them, held his lantern aloft, gave a triumphant, 
See, lads, what nonsense they believe. A lot of silly old person talk. Bogles and darklings and what have you. And he laughed and he whooped, and as he did, he failed to hear the sound. It was a long, sighing moan that came up from the sea, filling the air, carrying chills and damp with it. Wailing it was, and it seemed to sweep up behind Tom. Tom's lantern went out, and he became aware of that moan. His voice faltered, and he just kind of stood there by the evil-looking snag, shocked. The other lads froze in place at that. They daren't go forward to him, daren't go back. They stood shivering with fright in the darkness, hands reached into pockets and coat linings and round necks as they grasped instinctively for their safe keeps. And all of a sudden, with hellish roars, here they all were, the creatures the lad was so disbelieving of. The horrors of the air, of the water, the slimy, creeping things, the crying, wailing things, ghastly, misshapen beasts, gruesome terrors. That night that had been so still was a terrifying cacophony of gibbering and shrieking, chattering and moaning. Tom turned his head wildly. Everywhere he looked was thick with them, grinning faces packed with teeth, blazing orange and yellow eyes, shadows that hinted at twisted bodies, warped limbs and clawed hands. The darkness was alive with them, a great wriggling, ghastly morass of madness. Despite it all, he was a brave lad, and he tried to keep his calm, stood with his back to the snag, casually put a hand in his pocket. The boys behind him made no such effort. They sunk to their knees, some muttering, some shouting, prayers and wise woman charms, and begging to the virgin to save them, holding tight, tight to their keepsakes, as though their lives depended on it. Which they did. They could just catch glimpses of what was happening up ahead at the snag, caught a snatched image of Tom's horrified, angry face as the shadow thronged between them. His nonchalant appearance was dropped now, and he was shouting and swearing at the bogles at the top of his lungs. He disappeared from view behind them, and they could only hear the chitters, the groans, and the shrieks of the creatures. A few seconds later, they caught a flash-bulb image of Tom fighting and struggling with them, and then he was plunged back into darkness. The dark beasts seemed to be leaving the rest of the lads alone, focusing all their attention on Long Tom as the others helplessly looked on. Once more the throng parted, and now they could see Tom clearly. He was lit up by some eerie yellowing light. He stood at the snag, face pale as death, one hand gripped tightly to the dead willow, and the other arm stretched out taut. And in turn, grasping Tom's other hand with supernatural power, was a hand. Just a hand, no trace of a body attached to it, just a stump where the wrist should join the arm. Rotting flesh dropped from its mouldy bones. It kind of hung in the air, and yet it was clearly pulling Tom with force, pulling him down towards the mud and the inky black waters of the swamp. The luminescence that was letting the lads so clearly see Tom's terrified expression 
came from the hand itself. It glowed evilly. With an inexorable strength, it pulled and pulled, and Tom's grip on the snag started to slide. But he held resolute. For a brief moment, the battle between man and disembodied hand seemed almost evenly matched. Until, in one quick instant, it wasn't. Tom's hand slipped from the snag, and he was pulled off the path with tremendous speed. He gave a terrible scream which was swiftly cut short as his body plunged face first into the mud and water with a mighty splash and he was swallowed up by the swamp. For a moment there was utter silence. Even the horrors hushed. The moment passed. And then those things turned away from the willow snag to the group of quivering, broken lads who'd followed Tom in. They rushed at them, swirled around them, snapping and growling and screeching. And the lads fair went out of their minds with terror as they cowered, but as long as they held on to their talismans, as long as they stayed on the path, then the things could do nothing to touch them. But the bogles howled and picked at them with bony fingers and blooded talons and gnashed great teeth. Wings beat all around them and the creatures roared. My grandad, said the old woman, who you remember is narrating this story and probably not adding in any of the modern references I've been doing. My grandad, he crawled his way out, all the way down the path on hands and knees, cutting himself raw on stones and roots as he did so. Him and a few others, they got back to the inn. And when the men there saw the state of him, well, they weren't cowards at all, these men, whatever Tom said. Just cautious and wise with age. And now they were needed, well, out they came with lanterns and keepsafes, and into the swamp they went. And any of the lads who hadn't made their way back, well, they found them all. Some were lying insensible in water holes, others gripping great snags and muttering verses over and over their voices harsh and raspy like they'd been smoking tobacco for sixty years. All of them they found. Except, of course, Tom. Where is he? they'd ask. But it wouldn't do no good, for whenever they did this, terror came over the lads, and they'd just shake and holler and sob, and there weren't nothing could be got out of them. But the next morning, in the dawn, some of them had recovered a bit, just a bit, mind you, and they managed to tell him what had happened. And with the darkness gone, the men really had no fear, and out onto the cars they went, up the path to the willow snag where they found Tom's lantern. Dropped and smashed it were, of course. But there were no sign of him. No one worked or rested that day. Out they all went, men and women searching and searching all over that place for a trace of the boy. The woman telling the story stops. And that's it, I suppose, you say. She almost seems to have forgotten you, and as you speak she looks up at you, intensely, strange shadows flickering across her face from the lamp. Oh no, oh, that'd be neater, wouldn't it? Better, even, maybe, I think, but but no. She notices that the cups are empty. 
There's a brief interlude where she makes more tea and you're left alone with your thoughts, gazing out of the window. You can't make anything out outside now, just the black of the night. You try not to imagine the face of a bogle appearing suddenly at the window. You almost manage it. The woman sits down and after a small while she resumes her story. His mother, she was beside herself. Of course, as anyone would be. They tried to comfort her, but she wasn't having any of it. Naturally, again. They tried to take her back to the cottage when the searching was all done, but she tore away from them and ran to the cars, calling out for her son, her baby, to come back to her. They made sure she got in no danger herself, and eventually that night, she did come back to the cottage. But she didn't stop next day, or day after that, neither. They kept searching, of course, but they knew he weren't coming back and there was stuff to be done, so people started getting back to their work. Even the lads who followed him did, though they crept around all timid and trembling and just crying sometimes. The whole village was like in some awful limbo. Life went on, but weren't no one the same, and it was quiet without Tom. But his mother, she had the worst of it. She'd no husband and no lad now, and every night she'd a lamp flaring in a cottage window, and she'd fling the door open and sit there, from dark till dawn, willing him to come home. They'd tell her to close her door at night, but she'd just say she had to keep it that way, and it was okay because he was going to come back to her, her son. He wouldn't leave his poor widowed mother, he wouldn't. But she hadn't seen that hand that grabbed his. And in the days she'd wander around the cars, just calling out again and again, begging to the thin air, begging him to come home. They tried to help her, but she weren't for helping. And it wasn't good for those lads who'd gone in with Tom, because every time they heard her cry or saw her roaming around, they remembered it all over again. And they'd come over all scared at what they'd seen, shaking and all. And also all ashamed, they'd done out more when they were big, strong lads, a lot of them. Not that there was anything they could have done, of course. Talked him out of it, I don't reckon so. He was the best of them, and he was set on it. Wouldn't have listened to anyone else. Once he'd got it into his head, it was like it was like a bullet from a gun. There was no stopping him till he hit something hard. And he had. Not that that made him feel better. As the days rolled on, they began to become a little scared of Tom's mother. All thin and grey and bent and wrinkled and woeful. Even said it were like she was turning into one of those marsh creatures herself. The old woman paused. That's just what they told me, you understand. And I know you think I'm fair wrinkled and maybe a hideous marsh creature myself, dearie. No, 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 it's okay. But she was far worse than I. It weren't just her age, it was it was the weight of it all, you know, changing her. Taking all the flesh off her. Every day she, she didn't eat, she just worried. I've had a good life, me, no complaints. Where were we, anyway? Ah, yes, well, it went on like that for a week or so, and I doubt any of them were expecting it to change, but she was moaning and wailing one evening, just before darkness, when all of a sudden there comes this different shout from the swamp, of shock and of joy. Up the path back to the village she runs, all waving and beckoning like mad, and folk came down to see her what she was about and she fair ran, led them back into the swamp along the path, until they could see the willow snag up ahead, 
And there, sitting up against it with his feet in the water, well, you'll have guessed it, I'm sure. Tom. His mother rushed to him, was cradling and kissing him and cooing over him and what have you. But what a changed lad he was. You've never taken him for the same person. That young fella who turned a lass's head. This Tom, his back were all bent strangely. He was terrible thin, and his limbs were shaking like. His face was all wrinkled up and white. And his hair, which had been thick and brown, was white or grey and thin, almost falling off of him. It was like all the colour had been frightened out of him. With one hand he kept pointing at something, and he had his eyes locked on whatever it was, staring at it. But there weren't nothing there. But his other hand, where the dead hand had gripped his, well, that hand weren't there at all. His arm just lay limply from his side with his ragged, bleeding stump on the end of it. The dead hand had torn it right off. But despite all the pain he was in, he just sat there, didn't even look at his rescuers or his poor mum, just muttered and laughed all crazy, and sometimes whimpered but didn't say no actual word of the Queen's English. They had to carry him back to the village like that, and he was gibbering and pointing all the way. I suppose you expect me to tell you that he got better over time and he were never the same, but he made some little life for himself. Something like that, right? I mean, what was the point of him coming back at all if the Lord didn't have some plans for him? And I don't know. But this ain't no theatre story with some neat ending where folks grow and learn and it's all right in the end, even if people get hurt a bit along the way. It don't need to make sense and it doesn't need to be reassuring so you can tell your kiddies. I know plenty like that, but you want to know what actually happened here in the past, right? So yeah, folk wanted to know what he'd seen, of course, down there for all that time. Don't bear thinking about, really. But he wasn't telling them nothing. Couldn't tell them. He'd never speak again for the rest of his life. All the folk of the village came to see him, talk to him, try and get him to just say a word. The wise woman and the priest... They used praying and spells and whatever. But none of it did anything. He was beyond helping by the old gods or the new, it seemed. And if there'd been any of your modern smart doctors back then, I don't reckon they'd have fared any better. All day long he'd just sit out in the sun or by the fire and stare at horrors no one else could see, just grinning and shaking. And in the night he'd wander round the edge of the swamp, screaming and shrieking and moaning like an animal in pain. His poor mother, who'd done nothing to deserve this, she wandered around after him like a dog, begging him to come home. And during the day she'd just kind of cuddle him and hush him like he were a babe. And if any folks stopped by to see her, she'd just smile and pat his head and say something like, I told you my baby would come home wouldn't leave his poor old mother, not her a poor widow, he'd not leave me, and he did, he came back to me. And then she'd smile and cry and what have you. And that, that is about a lot of it. It might not be much of a story, but it's just what used to happen back in those days when folks messed with the creatures in the swamp. He didn't live more than a year. They found him in his bed. And he was in the arms of his mother, who was cradling him like he was a baby, 
and both of them dead. She had a smile on her lips, my granddad said. Looked the happiest he'd ever seen her. But on Tom's face, there was this ghastly expression, terrified and inhuman, as if all the horrors had followed him to his house and claimed him for their own. They buried them both in the churchyard. But they don't always stay there soundly, it said. And that's really that. No more Pattersons round here anymore. Reckon everyone kept all their keepsafes on them for many years after that. The woman sits back in her chair, and as she does, she almost disappears into the shadows. Clearly properly finished this time. You take a look down at your pages of scribbled notes, lit only by the flickering of the lamp. You can still see out the window, but all that's there is foreboding darkness outside. They'll be expecting you back at the inn, won't they, dearie? She says, and you take that as your cue to leave. There's a few pleasantries exchanged. You leave a little money with her as you agreed, and tell her you'll mention her name in your article, though you have no intention of doing so. And she shows you out. There should be a moon tonight, but the cloud is so thick in the sky it's darkness. You light your own lantern, and you make your way down the path back to the village. The fields stretch away in all directions, and the only other things to be seen are the hedgerows and the occasional solitary tree, looming out of the pitch blackness of the night. As you walk, you can't help but think back to Tom Patterson, also making his way down a path with a lantern. You start to sing some ballad to distract yourself, one of the funny, rude ones from earlier. But just singing, like he did, that makes you picture him more, out in the swamp. You find that your lantern light is reflecting off a light fog which seems to have risen since you began your walk. You're a sensible, educated person. You don't believe the things that credulous rural dwellers do. It's not sensible to be scared, but you are. You haven't got one of these safe keeps with you. Not that they did anything, but you wish you did. You pick up the pace. You start to sing the words of the song a little louder. You hear something, a voice. It's far away. You look around, but there's just the rough path and the mist. It comes again, it's louder now, much, much closer, as if it travelled a great distance, great speed. A woman's voice repeating something. It's, it's someone from the village, out for a walk, looking for you, maybe. You tarried at the house after all, maybe they were worried. Your heart pounds painfully in your chest. You stand immobile as the words come again, getting closer. Some part of your mind is urgently trying to make you aware that while the voice is in front of you, getting rapidly closer, you can't hear the footsteps you'd expect from the gravel-strewn path. You make out the words of that voice now. I said he'd come back. Back to his poor old mother. Her a widow. He came back. He did. A figure emerges from the mist in front of you. Your lantern drops. You never do get a chance to return to London to write up your report. 
Your family have a lavish funeral, as is the way with your class. A decade or so later, Marie Balfour is told the story. She writes it down and publishes it. Is the first person ever to do so. Who knows how many amateur folklore collectors heard it before she did, and were no longer around to pass it on. Okay, everyone. Firstly, thank you for sticking with that. I hope you enjoyed it despite of, or even just possibly because of, the second-person framing narrative. Just to be clear, the original story is the one of Long Tom, as told by the woman, and all the rest of it was added in by me. It was a slightly folk-horror-type framing narrative, because the story itself really seems to come from folk-horror to me, and I just extended on that. If you don't know what folk horror is, and I know that probably 80% of my audience do, so bear with me a second, it's a particular genre of horror associated more with films and television than with books, which includes films such as The Wicker Man, The Witch, Midsommar. This story seems to fit into the Wikipedia definition of folk horror very well indeed, which is not common in folklore at all. To quote that Wikipedia definition, quote, Typical folk horror elements include a rural setting and themes of isolation, religion, the power of nature, and the potential darkness of rural landscapes. End quote. So yeah, you, hopefully you can see how that all applies to today's tale. Though, more often than not, folk horror features the idea of an outsider or outsiders coming to a community which is strange and hostile to them. Those ideas don't originally feature in the story of the Dead Hand, as all the people in it are from the area, but by building that narrative, we have a little more of that outsider idea. Now, enough about my process, so to speak. As I said in the episode, this tale was collected by Marie Clothfield Balfour, who collected a small number of other stories from the Lincolnshire Fens in the very short time she lived there, and she's the one who paints this evocative image of the Fens as a horoscope, a weird pagan Christian land of low magic and ancient horrors. There are, of course, similar things in other parts of British folklore. Hart's Head, which we covered in the Manchester episode, has a similar feel. It's really the emphasis on this surviving paganism that sets the stories of Balfour apart. Now, such ideas weren't rare in the 19th century at all. Surviving paganism was a main theory of folklore discourse, like I kind of indicated at the start. Though it is largely discredited today, the idea that folk culture contains these ancient ideas that haven't otherwise been transmitted. But what is different here is the appearance of this pagan survival in the stories told to Balfour, in that it actually features as an explicit part of the tale, rather than being some theory about how the legends had developed. That is fairly unique. Witch charms and bogors and night terrors crop up in other stories. Very rarely do they owe their legacy explicitly to pagan gods and surviving rituals. But according to Balfour, the ancient people of the Fens had, quote, gods and legends that did not lie quiet beside them, but rose again with the memories of blood and slaughter and lawlessness into haunting horrors that walk in the night, end quote. 
These are pagan horrors reborn and haunting this land, and the way that the people combat them are pagan ways. Now if Balfour was writing fiction, this wouldn't be quite so unusual. This kind of idea crops up much more commonly there than in folk tales, though admittedly it was still quite rare at this time period and became much bigger in the uh, start of the 20th century and onwards. So it's possible that there is a bit of literary flourish going on here, and some have certainly accused Balfour of outright creating the stories herself. Though, against that, an extensive piece of recent scholarship by Maureen James comes quite firmly down on the side of Balfour here, where she is very explicit that she did collect them. I don't think it's entirely silly to propose a mix, real collected stories, enhanced by Balfour, though she emphatically denies this in the introduction to her first work. Whether Balfour wrote them or not, most of them do remain pretty unique. If you're interested in this topic, I've written a bit more about it on the website, on the page about MC Balfour, so go check that out at talesofthebritishisles.com. There's a link to the episode page in the podcast description, and you can get to it through there. Right, the story itself. What do I think of that? If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, it won't surprise you to learn that this is totally up my alley. Huge collections of creatures, strange cut-off locations despondency. I like a bit of that. No happy endings here. And there's also that sense to the story, and I said this about Kate Krakenuts, which is actually a fairy tale, but this smacks even more of it. It feels how stories work in real life. No hero's journey here, just everyday life in a place that is filled with ancient terrors. Now, it's certainly possible to construct an argument that this is some kind of morality tale. Tom is punished for going against the adults and not doing stuff right and his arrogance, but I feel that there's a few problems with that. Uh, Firstly, the issue of proportionality. Yes, in some morality tales, people, and particularly morality tales featuring animals, are killed for the slightest of slights. But this does seem really out of proportion. If he just got a good fright, I might be more willing to accept it. Maybe even if he just lost the hand. But not this kind of hopelessness. And compounding that, the story doesn't really seem to lean into his arrogance as much as it is emphasising the importance of using magic and staying home at night, which aren't usual moral lessons. And in addition to that, Tom's mother suffers almost as badly as him, and it's quite clear that she is completely blameless here. So moving on from that, one thing that does keep occurring to me with Tom's lost hand, the one that was ripped off, which I realise I only briefly touched on in the telling, well, is this how these animated dead hands reproduce? A hand pulls his off? It kind of makes sense, is there another dead hand? Tom's running around the swamp now. It seems to be a really sensible reading of the story to me, which makes the story a little bit odder still. So, living hands then. When I tell a tale, I like to find similar folk tales. And this might not surprise you overly, given what I've just said about MC Balfour, but that's proved difficult for this one. It certainly seems like something that should exist in other tales, but I can't really find an exact analogue. Don't get me wrong, cut-off hands absolutely crop up all over the place. Those are standard magical items. I've actually done a story featuring one already, The Hand of Glory, episode 10, 
Uh, it's a very short one and one of the least listened to episodes, so if you want you can go and check that out. The Hand of Glory is a magical totem that opens doors and sends people to sleep. It's made by cutting off a dead man's hand and then sticking candles into the fingers. But the hand itself isn't alive. To take just one other folkloric example, in an Irish story written up by Lady Wilde, yep, that's Oscar Wilde's mum, um, big folklore she was, a witch uses a dead hand to create extra butter, like lots and lots of butter, by stirring the butter with the hand, which, yeah, isn't good, isn't good at all, and she's found out, so it's all okay. Now, cut-off hands also appear very frequently as an alchemical symbol called the hand of the philosopher, but here the disembodied bit isn't that important, and the lore is more around the shape of the hand and its alchemical properties than anything else. And yes, I can hear you all loudly thinking, what about Thing from the Adams Family? Big fan of the Adams family here. Obviously, Gomez and Morticia have one of the most healthy and joyous marriages in all of cinema. But the thing is, huh, that while Thing is a disembodied living hand, the Adams family is not a folkloric tale, though it is a great one. Lots of 20th and 21st century fiction do use disembodied hands. One of my favourite fantasy authors, China Mieville, has in his novels a race called the Handlingers who match that description. But once again, not folk tales. Now, I can't say that there aren't stories featuring stuff like this in existence. It's very difficult to prove an absence. The catalogue of even British and Irish folklore is huge, never mind the rest of the world. So if any listeners are aware of physically disembodied hands which have a life of their own, I'd love to hear about it. Particularly if they are working with other creatures like they seem to be in this story. Now, there are phantom disembodied hands. Those do crop up sometimes. Ghost stories often feature this motif. The hands may be beckoning someone in, or may temporarily become physical in order to strangle someone or push them off a cliff. That does happen. 20th century accounts from Devon speak of the hairy hands, which are, once again, sort of physical. They haunt a specific road, the B3212. And according to reports, they appear out of nowhere to grasp the wheels of cars to swerve them off the road. One particularly chilling tale tells of a woman who saw the hand trying to open the door to a caravan she was in, and it only retreated when she made the sign of the cross. This sounds most like the dead hand of the story, but still not very much. The most similar thing I found is a legend from Mexico and Colombia of La Mano Peluda, which I'm sure I've just mispronounced or the hairy hand, which is a legend with a few different interpretations, but which is about a disembodied hairy hand that does various things, but generally murders and terrifies people. Sometimes, but not always, those who killed the person whose body it was originally attached to. I found one description of it as, quote, running in the fields, looking like a big deformed tarantula that is searching for more victims to kill, end quote which I particularly enjoy. Now, La Mano Peluda was also the name of a very popular late-night Mexican radio show where people rang in with their stories of the supernatural. And if you want to fall down a rabbit hole of weird stuff on YouTube, I cannot recommend it enough. There's a load of English language content of people talking about it as well. It was a massive phenomenon and so many stories have come from it. Okay, that feels like we've suitably strayed from the topic at hand. 
<laughs> See what I did there? Oh, goodness. Right, so, there are two more Lincolnshire Fens tales that I've told, by the way. One is The Buried Moon, episode 9, and the other is The Green Mist, which is a Patreon episode. And that feels like a nice segue out of the discussion section. So, you can sign up for Patreon to get extra members episodes, and you'll only pay when they are released. That should be one a month for the next few months at least, in addition to the two podcast episodes. There are four there already, and a new one featuring an interesting choice of a pet is coming soon. Thank you to everyone who has signed up on Patreon since the last episode. I'm really trying not to do adverts, and it's the only way I'm supporting this podcast at the moment, so your support means a hell of a lot. If you can't do that but enjoy the podcast, then please do tell other people, or more realistically, your social media about it. There's a lot more coming this year, and I'm much more active now on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So if you want more content, including occasional shorter story and random photographs from my days out, that's where to find it. But even if you don't do any of that, then thanks just for listening. I really appreciate it. There is, of course, also the website where there's some information about this episode, and I've recently included an essay about why I talk about folklorists so much on the podcast, and why I do it, even though I'm annoyed about it. Thanks to the patrons who've signed up since the last episode. That is Michelle, Holly, and Rocco Tacotos. Thank you all so much. Okay, that's it. Next episode we'll be going somewhere that somehow we haven't been to before, positively dripping with folklore. The Isle of Man, where we'll be meeting a saint, a fiddler, and a strange church dweller. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Music